The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Sometimes the guests I host on the show are people who've had career paths that you might want to emulate. They're doing things that maybe you can see yourself doing. But sometimes I like to speak to people who have remarkably unique experiences. Like, for example, today's guest. She's the only Hello Monday guest to have had not one but two parents run for the highest public office in the country, president. She spent her adolescence at the White House. She spent her early childhood in the governor's mansion. Chelsea Clinton. In her adulthood, Chelsea has become an advocate, a storyteller, a researcher, a podcast host, and a mom. She's a thoughtful interviewer and a wonderful interviewee, a very careful speaker. I started our interview by asking about what she aspired to be when she was just a child. I remember you so many people saying to me as I was handing out like stickers and American flags and thanking them for coming to see my dad and learn about him and kind of what do you want to do for our state? Because like when you're a really little kid, basically you can like hand out stickers and flags and thank people. And I just have so many memories, Jesse, of people saying to me like, when you grow up, are you going to run for governor of Arkansas? And me being like, I don't know, like this week I want to build space <laughs> satellites and next week I want to be a doctor and then I want to be a paleontologist. And every once in a while they'd say like, and do you want to be a lawyer like your mother? And I would think again, like, you know, this week I want to be a teacher. Like, no, what? I don't know. And so I think in some ways it actually was fantastic to be kind of on the receiving end of high expectations and of people asking kind of me these big questions. And in other ways, it was, you know, quite strange that people were asking these big questions or having high expectations of of a three or a four-year-old. But I was aware from a very early age that you grew up and you had a job or you maybe had many jobs. Um, Cause I certainly had seen my mom already as a little girl, you know, work in her law firm and work as a legal aid lawyer and do her advocacy work outside of her legal work. And then I saw my dad like go to work you know, at the Arkansas state Capitol. And so I, I understood you grew up and you did something from a, a very early age, not only cause I saw my parents, um, in a, a quite kind of immediate sense. I have lots of memories of going to the office with them as a kid or going to kind of watch them do their work in the world. And also because I just was constantly being asked, like, are you going to grow up and be the governor of Arkansas? I think no matter who you are, you're born into a world that has expectations for who you will become before you form your own expectations about who you get to be. And if you're lucky, you get a lot of room to investigate your own expectations and make your mind up yourself. And if you're really lucky, um, the world in which you were born supports your your ideas and your goals for yourself. It sounds like you were a kid whose parents always held the expectation that y- you would grow up to do something. Did they have ideas about what they wanted you to do that they conveyed to you? I have no memory of them imposing um, any expectations about what I would do, but very much, you know, Jesse, there was, you know, an enormous sense of 
Like you finish what you start, you always do your best, you show up with your full self, you kind of work as hard as you can, you ask for help, kind of when you need it, you should never assume that you know all the answers, by definition you don't. And so kind of all of these mantras about work and work ethic, persistence, the importance of showing up, admittedly, not only kind of in a school sense or a work sense, but in a just kind of citizenship and, and person sense were in, embedded in me very early on, um, not only through the example of my parents, my grandparents, with whom I was also quite close, but also kind of through the conversations we would have and just the expectations of you didn't get to do certain things until you had done your homework. You didn't get to do certain things until you'd written all your thank you notes. You didn't get to do certain things until kind of whatever else was often quite literally on the table. And my mother saying like, you know, you have to finish that first. And I think the inculcation of those habits in a non-work environment as a kid were certainly helpful to me in an educational environment. And then now very much in different work environments over the the many, many years since I you know, sat at that table with my mom in the 1980s. So those are strong home expectations that you had. And then, as you said earlier, you also had just a ton of interest from a massive outside audience, people who were following your father and your mother and their political aspirations. Now, how did you make sense of that pressure throughout your childhood? Did you fully understand it even? I felt the pressure in the moment, but I didn't carry that pressure home with me. I'm really thankful to all the teachers I had. My teachers and my coaches, I think, thankfully, I don't have any memories of ever feeling like they expected more or less out of me because of who my parents were. They just expected me to show up and pay attention and listen to direction and do the best that I could for myself, you know, for my team, if it was a team sport or a group activity at school. And so I am really thankful that that was my experience uh, growing up. And so as much as, yes, like there were outside pressures and there were strangers asking me all sorts of things and telling me all sorts of things, uh, I think it thankfully didn't really influence or shadow me in any way because the people I was really looking up to (laughs) for direction and structure didn't have that same affect and then didn't have the same effect um, that otherwise might have been the case had they also expected more or less or different of me than the kids in you know my classes or on the field or in the ballet studio you know whose parents weren't the governor and first lady of Arkansas or later the United States Chelsea I just read a bit about the youth group you were part of in high school and learned that you were Methodist. I was Methodist and my wife was Methodist. And I think we actually, just aside, we didn't even understand that that was important to our identity until we met each other and began our own family and realized how fully um, it had formed our character and there was an alignment that had come from that experience. I, I go to church every week, Jesse, still to this day. Every week um, I go to church. Uh, my husband's Jewish and we are both quite religious. We have always uh, not only believed, but found that gave us more in common than might be first apparent. And so we celebrate Shabbat on uh, Friday evenings in non-COVID times, Uh, would go to synagogue also on Friday evenings. 
Now we're admittedly more likely to go to virtual synagogue. And we were going to virtual church on Sunday mornings and uh, just recently have been able to go back in person to church and our kids to Sunday school. So uh, our faiths and our faith traditions and the practice of our faiths is very important um, in our family, kind of for my husband, for me, and uh, very much now with with our children. Would you say as a young person that informed how you chose to think about your career and the fact that you would have a career at all? Because Chelsea, you were coming into your adulthood in a rather unique position. I have always known that my faith is an important part of of who I am and how I wanted to lead my life. Uh, and you know, I went to church throughout college, which was, I mean, there were not a lot of people going to church, at least at Stanford in the kind of late 90s and early aughts. And I thankfully found a community and have uh, friends still to this day that I met through going uh, to church while we were at Stanford. My grandmother, my my mother's mother was a Methodist, raised her children Methodist for my mother, for whom her youth group was also a really important part of her life. And she has spoken and written quite extensively about that. And then kind of that, that kind of ethos um, and kind of the the call to do the most with what we have, mm-hmm. um, I think very much is what I feel. I, I can't though really distinguish how much of that I feel because of kind of the matrilineal line in my family of like my grandmother to my mother to me yeah. and then what got kind of buttressed yeah. kind of by our Methodist faith or what kind of originated there in our faith and then got kind of like buttressed by my family. And so certainly think too that for those of us who very much have a level of of privilege of of place and space and opportunity and kind of parentage that is also though part of the equation of to do the most with what with what we have and that has been a really important part of how i thought about my life more over the last dozen or 14 years than the first part of my career when I was more focused on how do I gain the skills, the tools, the knowledge, and the confidence, candidly, to then do the work that I want to do, hopefully, to the highest and best purpose. I'm curious to hear more about the confidence piece. To suggest that you need to gain confidence introduces the idea that perhaps there was a moment in which you you had less confidence. And I'm curious if you could speak to that journey a bit. Well, I, th- I would, I would hope that anyone, um, you know, in their late teenage, early 20 years would have the humility of all that we don't know. And so for me, it, it wasn't, oh, I need to gain confidence as a standalone thing. It was like, oh, I need to gain confidence through the doing and and the learning. It wasn't an end of itself. It was the outcome mm-hmm. of what I would study and then the other experiences I had as a, you know, a, a consultant or kind of a financial analyst and just really wanting to have kind of these basic skills that I hoped, you know, yeah. later in life, because, you know, when you're like, 21, like 28 or 29 feels like much later in life. So I was like, at the end of my 20s, like later in life, I want to know more, have more, not just 
substance, but the grit and the confidence that hopefully comes with that substance to be able to have or begin to have or over time have the impact that I had hoped to have very much in line again with do the most that we can with what we've been given. Chelsea, isn't it remarkable how when you're 21, the idea of 28 or 29 just seems so far into the future? Oh my gosh. Just, so I thought about, <laughs> I, I, I did go back and get my doctorate degree, but I actually really thought hard when I was like 22 and halfway through my first master's program in international relations and, and with a real focus on public health. And I I thought, wow, I really, I want to do a PhD because I have these questions rattling around in my brain and I want the tools and the kind of discipline of knowing how to break down what feels like an intractable problem into digestible research bits and then do original research and figure out how to analyze it and knit it all together and then hopefully write something compelling and defend it and get a doctorate degree. But I thought, oh my gosh, at like 22, Jesse, I was like, but then I would be like 27 or 28 and I wouldn't have done anything else. And I'm just going to be so old. I'm going to be so old and I'm going to know like a whole lot about very few things. Like I need to go learn at least a little about a lot more and then maybe I'll come back and do my PhD, which is actually exactly what I did and was absolutely the right path for me. But yes, at 22, like 27 or 28 just felt like so far in the future. Yeah. Well, also, just thinking about your path through your 20s, did you understand at the time like how useful it would be to have both the public health background and the, the finance strategy background, that they would pair well together? Or were you just driven by curiosity? I, I hoped they would pair well together. I did make a conscious choice to, to go first to consulting for a few years, then into finance um, for a few years, because I thought I could learn things there that would help advance my just broader understanding of how the world works and of the various kind of forces and influences beyond uh, kind of the political ones in in global public health. And, and I had hoped I would be more efficient, more effective, candidly just then smarter and thinking about the doctoral work I wanted to do. And I also hoped to kind of pick up on an earlier thread that all of that would give me more confidence um, to then pursue my doctoral work. I knew that pursuing you know, a doctoral degree, kind of being on the road toward having, hopefully, uh, a successful kind of dissertation and defense and kind of all the other things one has to do can be a really lonely journey because it is something you're doing by definition on your own, even if you're doing, even if you're working in a lab with other people, like it has to be your research. And I knew that I needed grit and confidence to be able to really focus, get the work done, and hopefully enjoy myself along the way. Yeah, well put. And it is a lonely process by definition. I mean, there would be like weeks where I was like, oh, I spoke to the barista (laughs) at the coffee shop this week, and I exchanged emails with my advisor. I was like, did I talk to another human? Maybe, briefly, or maybe not. 
So yeah. yes, there are, there are moments of of loneliness, and yet I'm so grateful that I had the chance to do it, and I'm very proud of of the work that I I did, and then the work that that has enabled me to do since. Was there a point for you where you said, okay, now I'm I'm finished getting all of the knowledge that I wanted to get in order to start to make the impact that I want to make? I'm going to go do that thing, or was it a little bit more of an organic process? It was more of an organic process. I can't really point to you know, oh, like I finished this bit of research and then therefore I felt like I had you know, something to contribute. It was just sort of, oh, I think this is really compelling and maybe other people are going to find that compelling too. And maybe that can start a conversation that will go and hopefully a productive or- a direction for the work. And, and then maybe f- for me too. And wouldn't that be great? We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Chelsea Clinton. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Chelsea so much is her podcast. It's called In Fact. Chelsea grew up on public radio, and when podcasts really took off, she was waiting for some public health content, a show that would use a focus on public health to tackle all sorts of topics from climate change to gun violence. She yearned for a show that used public health as the lens through which all kinds of evidence-based conversation was possible. And when that show didn't emerge, Chelsea decided to create it herself. The first season tackled so many hot-button issues through that public health lens, and that made it more possible to talk about some really difficult topics. Because who doesn't want kids to grow up healthy and strong, or for our world to thrive? I'm quite a political person with a lot of strong political views, and... Yet I continue to hope that there can be conversations that happen outside of politics, particularly when they're about um, protecting our most vulnerable in ways that we know they can and should be protected. And then, you know, this season I focused on, you know, just amazing women uh, doing amazing things, many of whom admittedly I've long admired as someone who now has written a number of books, you know, for young readers focused on women, I just was so struck, Jesse, by how many people started to say things to me like, I mean, don't you think you're just like neglecting all these stories of amazing men? <laughs> or do you think that you're like going to tune out like young male readers or dads? I was like, I'm, wait, what? I'm sorry. Like you realize... Most of history, in most places, in most languages, in most traditions around the world, have been like, centered on men, told by men, with maybe women having a supporting role. Maybe. Chelsea, I love that. It makes me think about, um, I had Ab- Abby Wambach on the show oh, yeah, a couple I love seasons Abby. ago. She's great. And she she had just published uh, her business book for women called Wolfpack. And I read it. Yeah, and I read it. It was like, it was a great business book. Everything in this book is also useful for 
men. And she said, oh, I know. She said, throughout history, people have been writing business books, which are business books for men, and women have been reading them and getting a lot for them. I just wanted to flip the script here and write a business book for women that men could also get something from. Yeah, totally. Well, I just time. <laughs> so I, I, I thought, oh gosh, well, we just need to keep centering women and kind of giving women more platforms to celebrate their successes candidly, and also hopefully celebrate their successes in a way that is accessible to people who would listen so that people do feel, oh, like that is relevant to my life. Like regardless of, of gender, like I, I can learn something from that story. So it was obvious listening to this last season in particular, Chelsea, that, um, how do I say this? You love listening to other people tell their stories. Like you're a very elegant interviewer. You don't, you don't get in the way of their stories. You don't interject yourself. You back up and make room for them. And I'm just curious um, where that came from. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I already knew quite a bit about the women who thankfully were on, in fact, this year. And yet I just learned so much from each conversation. And that was such a gift. And so you know, while uh, it is, I think, yes, you know, common courtesy and curiosity and humility, it also is a little bit like being a, a good listener and also a teeny tiny bit selfish because I want to know more and I want to learn more and I want to know how kind of what they're sharing can help make me more of, of who I hope to be in the world. Well, so there's one more thing that I want to speak with you about before um, we finish up. And that is that um, we're coming out of two very painful years, the first two years of the pandemic. I'm not going to say we're post-pandemic because we're not. Because we're not, no. Um, but here we are. And you are a mother of young children and I am a mother of young children. We're in sort of a similar stage of life that way. And I'm just going to share my experience. It has been so hard and I have everything going for me. I have a supportive job. I have a life that allows for it. I have a very supportive partner and still it is so hard. And that's my personal experience. And then I look out. I look out to the listeners of Hello Monday and the stories that they write to me. I get a lot of emails about this. I look out at LinkedIn's um, you know, audience of users and members. And I see women in particular, caretakers, but mostly women, just leaving, leaving the workforce, feeling like they have to choose between caretaking and building their careers and that they at some point have no other choice but to caretake. And I'm curious, like, first of all, what the experience has been like for you personally. And second of all, how you think about, in particular, because you have just had this season of episodes about women, like what we need to be doing to support women right now. Oh, gosh, Jesse. Well, last year, late last year, when you know, there was so much attention being paid to the net 2 million women who had left the workforce, it was partly kind of painful to watch the public discourse uh, because so much of it was like, oh, well, what do we do like for these women? I'm like, okay. Or we could be thinking, what does this tell us about what we just need to do to better support caregivers who are disproportionately women, like period, full stop, whether we're living in a pandemic or not. And I don't think that quite happened. It certainly I think 
didn't happen in conversation um, or in evaluation in any real sense. And it certainly hasn't happened in a public policy sense. We know um, what helps women be able to stay in the workplace, whether they're a, a mom of you know, a school-aged child or the mom of three non-school-aged children or caring for elderly relatives or having to care for elderly relatives and young children. And yet we just continue, Jesse, to not do that, right? We continue to not have paid family leave. We continue to not have predictive scheduling. We continue to not have meaningful kind of flex time. We continue to not have real pay equity. We continue to not have, even if we were to have pay equity, you know, living prevailing wages across the country. And so to me, we have like huge mountains of evidence of what needs to happen from both a public policy perspective and a kind of company or corporate policy perspective and yet, in so many places, that continues to not happen. Um, and it is really painful that even now it isn't happening. And so thinking about Women's History Month and all of the elected officials kind of making all these statements, celebrating women, and I'm thinking, like, you didn't vote for paid family leave. Like, you didn't vote to expand maternity benefits in the Affordable Care Act. Like you didn't vote to raise the minimum wage. Like you didn't vote to have real pay equity or pay transparency mandated. Like you didn't support like quotas for, you know, women on corporate boards. Like you cut back funding for women's studies at the public universities in your state. Like you cut back funding for, you know, pandemic relief that was being like purpose toward working families. So it was so painful to see all these people like rhetorically support like Women's History Month and women and thinking like you have stood in the way of really meaningfully creating a world in which women can sometimes just enter yeah. and succeed and thrive in their full selves and whatever that may mean in their jobs, in their home lives, for themselves. And so it's not to me like, oh, what do we need to do? Like, we know what we need to do. We just have to actually go about the business of doing it and apply pressure to the people in power to to do those things and then hopefully hold them accountable when they don't. That was Chelsea Clinton. Her podcast is called In Fact. I hope you'll check it out. This week on Office Hours... We explore how we can find common ground on difficult topics. When you need to bring up something that's just hard to agree on, what works for you? We'll be pulling our best suggestions this Wednesday afternoon at Office Hours, where producer Sarah Storm and I will have our weekly cup of coffee with whoever is up for joining. I hope you will think about coming too. We'll meet at 3 p.m. Eastern on the LinkedIn news page, or you can email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. Sarah Storm is our producer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Diondo is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor are our best advocates. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. 
I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. Jacqueline Woodson has been, like, seriously somebody that I have read and followed and loved since, like, the mid-'90s. You found her before I did. I admit I found her through my children. I found her because... I loved Bernice Regan in college, and then I loved her daughter's music, Toshi Regan, and I would go to all of her shows. Jesse, you're like, I'm just much cooler <laughs> than you, Chelsea, which is fine and fair, probably. Hardly, hardly. I bet I had, I bet I had a bit, more, maybe not, but I bet I had a bit more freedom in high school to follow my purview.